Good morning, and happy Easter. So my name is Dan Carlson. I'm, I'm blessed to be one of the elders here at Grand Rapids E-Free Church. I want to welcome all of you. Um, if you're a guest or a visitor here this morning, thank you so much for choosing to spend your time this morning with us. We really appreciate that you're here. On your program, I want to direct you to the back of the card. Um, if you have any prayer requests or if you're a visitor here and want to know more about the church, um, there's some places to mark that. Uh, fill out your email address and we can get in touch with you. Just let us know that you were here. Um, also, there's a checkbox on here. If this morning is a morning when you decide to accept Christ as your Savior, we would love to know that as well. So please check that out. This morning, I'm going to read from the book of Matthew on, on the resurrection. Uh, Matthew was, was one of the disciples. Matthew actively ministered with Christ. He was alive at the time of the resurrection. Matthew was a, a tax collector. Tax collectors typically didn't have a real good reputation. And I believe that because of that, Matthew was made sure that he was very accurate in how he recorded things. Um, so this is what Matthew wrote. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, where they will see me. Christ is risen. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we are in such awe of your tremendous gift of salvation and eternal life and the tremendous price that you paid to give that gift to us. Father, it, it is amazing that we are able to receive that gift for free. Lord, we join our hearts this morning in lifting up everyone who does not know you as a Savior. Lord, we pray that, that they will come to you and accept you, accept that, that precious gift, and come to know the peace and the joy that we have known that only comes through you. Father, we love you. We thank you. 
We give you our, our mind, our spirit, our body, and our will. Thank you, Lord. Amen. And welcome to Grand Rapids E3. Uh, my name is Ron. I have the privilege of being a part of Grand Rapids E3 for a period of time. And what a joy that we can spend Easter Sunday together. I like the term Resurrection Sunday. And we are going to look at maybe something a little different. Give me a minute here. We're going to look at this, what we call Easter Sunday, our resurrection, from a different perspective. It's not always easy to come up with something maybe different than the actual narrative, though that's very good. But I want to tell you how I came to this. I'm praying, and I'm saying, what would be helpful? And I'm going, well, they probably have heard the narrative, and then Dan just read it, so you heard it again. So I thought, what if we did this? What if we ask this question? What if Jesus did not rise from the dead? What are the implications? When Jesus died on the cross, he had three words. It is finished. What was finished? Well, the story wasn't finished because he would rise from the dead and he would ascend and he would at the right hand of the Father. But where do you look for those kinds of answers I was reading 1 Corinthians 15, and it emerges quite clearly. 1 Corinthians 15 is an extensive handling of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his followers. So what we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians 15. Before we go there, just a couple of preliminaries. Number one, Paul founded this church with a missionary group in about AD 52, and about, it should be something that else should be said about Corinth. <clears throat> Corinth was uh, a needy church. They were what we would call, they needed attention. So Paul spent about 18 months there, and when he left, it was quite healthy. But when he writes his two letters, First and Second Corinthians, they're struggling. They're struggling with a number of things. There was immorality amongst them. They were cheating. They were actually taking one another to court. There were heavy-duty lawsuits. There were actually disputes about spiritual gifts, a sense of who's superior. And Paul has to write back to them. But one of the doctrines that he most was concerned, cardinal doctrines of the faith is, they were eclipsing or hedging on the resurrection of Christ and of believers. The background to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, is, of course, the planting Narrative in Acts 18. But his concern goes to the next level as he's writing them to correct an error that had begun to take, had begun to take root within the congregation. So what we're going to do is we're going to say what if. And we're going to look at Paul's argument. What if Jesus did not rise from the dead? Five inference implications. Number one, preaching and faith are useless. We'll get to that. Preaching as such misrepresents God's story. Number three, faith is futile and we are not forgiven. And neither were they. Those who have fallen asleep have all perished. If this is it, Paul says we are to be pitied, meaning even what we're doing here this morning, 
is an exercise in fertility. So let's pray as we move forward. Our Father God, this doctrine, this ever so important doctrine, instructs us that in fact Jesus survived death and we will too. And that there will come a day when we will be resurrected and given a new body. And we will follow the pioneer of being raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus, and given now at your right hand and where he is interceding even for us in these very moments. So guide us in every respect. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. What a joy. We're going to look at two lines of defense. Paul's going to come up against this thing that was happening in Corinth to bring to bear some glorious truths. And his first line of defense in to defend, in fact, that Jesus did Christ, did rise from the dead. He starts out with reminding the Corinthians, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. Here it is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. By the way, this is the gospel. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We know that's the gospel because the previous verses tell us. But then he's bringing the first line of defense that in fact Jesus was raised from the dead. Verse 5, he appeared. To who? Peter, then to the 12. Then more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So they were still giving testimony. Though some have fallen asleep, that is some have passed. Then he appeared to James his half-brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. The proclamation was Jesus had died in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures? All the Old Testament. From Genesis chapter 3 on, the story of Jesus starts at the very beginning. So Paul was, what? Referring back to the Old Testament, and there are many scriptures in the Old Testament, about also the resurrection. Much clearly in the New Testament, but Job talked about it, Moses talked about it, and so on and so forth. The Psalms talk about it, which means David did. But Paul's first line of defense is, we, this is really elementary, please forgive me, we saw him. I read this week, a certain individual preaches, teaches, excuse me, at a seminary, and she has a philosophical degree a philosophy degree, and she says, finally, after all the evidence of the document, says, well, the disciples saw something. And her conclusion was, they saw a ghost. Well, that's not what it says. There's no ghost here. Paul is saying, I, we, saw him. I don't know, that's pretty convincing, isn't it? But some in the Corinthian church and in our culture big time have said, this is all a bunch of fairy tales. Really? A number of years ago, I planned an event, helped plan an event. 500 people showed up. At that event was a very important person, the governor of Minnesota. I don't know many really important people, with the exception of your elders here. I know them pretty well. 
Tim Plenty shows up and we plan this event and there are 500 people there. I spent time with Tim Plenty. We prayed together. A few of us got together. We talked. Some small talk, some not so small talk. We talked very little about politics. But then he left. Got in the helicopter or the car, went to the helicopter and left. Now, after that event, a number of people came up to me and said, boy, that was so good having Tim Plenty there. And what if I had said, how do you know? And they said, I saw him. Well, are you the only one that saw him? No, there was 500 of us. Can you imagine going to courtroom and they call the witnesses and 500 come up and sit in, on that one chair? It gets pretty crowded, a little warm too. And they say, did you see him? We saw him. Because here it says, they saw him. They were gathered, here it says, at one time. A thing shall be confirmed by what? The Old Testament says two or three witnesses. This is a little far beyond two or three witnesses. Then he says, he appeared to the 12. So they saw him, the disciples. Not everybody believes this. In the literal resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Came across a manuscript by a pastor who, in fact, this might be happening in our very city. I know it's happening across America. They're coming to Easter Sunday and pastors, guys and gals are getting up and say, isn't it a great Sunday? But I don't really believe it's true. Well, I have a quote. Somebody who doesn't really believe it's true. Dear friends, I do not want to insult you today. Now you're feeling better, aren't you? In fact, I know you are very intelligent beings. In fact, most of you are college graduates. Some of you have PhDs and master's degrees. And you're sitting here listening to me. And we are about to talk about the resurrection story. I think we should first, quote unquote, profess together that the resurrection is a myth. This is a quote, actual quote. This is not to say it's not true. Okay, did you hear what I just read? <laughs> I think we should profess first that the resurrection is a myth. That is not to say it's not true. Okay. On the contrary, to say the resurrection is a myth is to say it is the deepest of all theological truths. To say the resurrection is a myth, I mean to say that we are not at all clear of what actually happened historically. When the Bible describes Jesus as being raised from the dead, it doesn't mean he actually was raised from the dead. But to say the resurrection is a myth, now I'm trying to defend himself, I think, it's to say it is a symbol of the transcendent life. I love it. I'm trying to figure that out. But <laughs> Do you know it's a silly idea to take away the resurrection? A number of years ago when I was a kid, I heard of something called taking one of your kidneys and giving it to somebody else. When I was a young kid. This was in the 60s. I'd say, how can you live without a kidney? Well, I found out you have two, right? But we, can, we know people who live without even defending or thinking about the resurrection. It's not necessary. Paul said, no, 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 no. It's absolutely necessary. The whole story falls apart. Everything we're doing here this morning, every song we did falls apart. Church falls apart. Salvation falls apart. And on and on. So his first line of defense, very elementary, we saw him. That's pretty good, right? But he, Paul, is going to give us a second line of defense. 
Verse 12, and now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? There's the issue. Some were saying there's no resurrection from the dead. So if there's no resurrection from the dead, period, then don't try and say Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul's thinking very logically. Verse 13 is a beautiful verse. Well, they all are. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. It seems to be a reversal of what he says in verse 12. We think, okay, Christ was raised, so I'll be raised. Now he's reversing it. He's saying, if there's no resurrection of you and I and the body of Christ and the followers of Christ, then Christ hasn't been raised. Is Paul confused? I don't think so. He's giving a beautiful picture of the church. He differentiated in Romans chapter 5 two types of people in the world. People who are in Adam or people who are in Christ. A person in Adam is programmed to act like Adam. A person in Christ now is reprogrammed with new disposition to be like Christ and obey him. And Paul is saying, stay in verse 13, if there's no resurrection from the dead, our representative, our head, Christ, hasn't been raised. Because if he was raised, we would be raised. We are in Christ. We are his. We are united to Christ. And Paul is kind of stepping out of what would be traditionally thought even amongst us. Now Paul's saying, if Christ hasn't been dead, I mean raised, we won't be raised. And if we've been raised, Christ hasn't been raised. Do you see the picture? It's a beautiful picture of what it is to be in Christ. But then he goes on to say, and if Christ has not been raised, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. So the first line of defense, we saw him. But there's a second line of defense, which actually is rooted in ancient argument or ancient rhetoric. And he's going to use a technique, you don't have to write this down, but it's called modus poens, poens, P-O-E-N-S. It's a form of argument from Greek thought that was rigorous. They would use it, they perfected it, the Greeks, to argue from affirmation or to argue from agreement, even if you didn't agree. So what you would do, what they would do is they'd say, okay, you have an argument. We're not going to attack you. I'm going to take your idea. By the, We've learned how to attack people. That's called argumented ad hominem, where we go after people. It's actually a kind of a corrupt way to do debate, where we attack the person rather than attack the idea or go after the idea. But Paul is careful. He's going after the idea, and he's going to use this ancient, but yet very, very popular mode or technique of argument to refute these who said, there's no resurrection. Christ hasn't been resurrected. Now, you might think, well, that's foreign. But actually, it isn't. We do it even in our homes. At least I did it. When I should say my teens did it to me. I'd, we have six kids. I think my boys should have all been lawyers. Because I would say to them, okay, young man, you were an hour late the other night. You are not going to use the car for one week. And he's thinking about this. And he's probably thinking about this way to argue. I don't know. He says, so let me see if I have this right. You're willing to get up at 6 in the morning and take me to baseball practice? I'm going, ooh, never thought of that. And if 
If you take away the car, your favorite daughter will have to walk a half mile to school. And my younger brother, Joel, he has to be picked up at 7 o'clock after practice. Are you willing to do that? And you begin to get the idea. And one week is, okay, one day. You can't have the car for one day. But what he does, he's brought me back to if. And that's what Paul's doing here in this way. He argues and he says this, if Christ has not been raised, here's five inferences. Here's five things you should think about. Church at Corinth. Here's five things our culture should think about. Here's number one, 14. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, verse one, then our what? Teaching, preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Mark that word vain. He's going to use that again later as we get to the end of chapter 15. He's saying, okay, let's just, let's just say it. Our preaching and teaching is worthless. Some of you sit around the family table and you go through devotions and you read your Bibles. And Paul said, he's, in, he's all or nothing. He's saying, it's useless. It's worthless. It's vain. It's empty is the word vain. Empty. Use your voice for something else. Pastors, be auctioneers. I think that would be fun someday. But he says, stop pretending. Your preaching helps no one. It's bad preaching. It's poor preaching. Even more than that, it's duplicitous. I have no idea what that word means, but I don't think it's good. But what about that content, that story he's told of a pastor? It's Monday morning. He went to get his car fixed. They fixed the car. The mechanic said, that'll be $1,000. But because I know you're a poor preacher, it's 800 The pastor said, how do you know I'm a poor preacher? I was in the services yesterday. I know you're a poor preacher. <laughs> but he's not talking about quality of preaching. Paul is saying, the content of your preaching is useless. It's a big hoax. It's a hoax. Your Savior actually is still what? Dead. You know how to explain that, right? Some theological seminaries say that the women, the women always get picked on. They went to the wrong tomb and it was empty. If they'd gone to the right tomb, they would have found them. Or here's another one. He was resuscitated. Three days and then resuscitate. Well. So people really believe that. This is the president of Union Theological Seminary, the state of New York, recently hired. This isn't some from 40 years ago. She was being interviewed just before Easter. And she was asked about the Easter resurrection story. Now, mind you, Union Theological Seminary, years ago, was founded on these values to promote the kingdom of Christ. All their professors required to affirm that they believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And on and on. But here's what she said about the Easter story. When you look into the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. Not sure. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Well, what's wrong with that? Those who claim to know whether or not the 
resurrection actually happened are kidding themselves. She goes on to say, the crucifixion is not something that our God would orchestrate. An abusive Godfather who would send his own son, kid, to the cross. That's what they call liberal theology. Not liberal Christianity, mind you. Liberal Christianity does not exist. Christianity is built on certain tenets which are founded in the original documents that define what Christianity. To say liberal Christianity exists is to use two words that don't fit together. Gresham Machen, a number of years ago, they think he even died because of all the stress. He stood up against Princeton Seminary and said, no, we are going to believe the miracles of the Bible. After they abandoned one Christian doctrine after another. And he died actually in Bismarck, North Dakota, they believe, from a broken heart. But he stood up against and he said, no. If it's not true, the logical conclusion is, let's close the doors. Let's go home. Let's not teach our kids. And on and on and on. So number one, he says, if Christ has not been raised, you're preaching and your faith is in vain. Number two, we are found to be misrepresenting God. He's going from bad to worse. He said, we're all counterfeits. Our lives are counterfeits. We, Paul says we, he uses the word we, which I really appreciate because he's, he's saying, then we are found to misrepresent God. The idea that maybe the disciples got together and they said, let's conspire together. If we become complicit and, and if we can actually get together on this, we could probably make a lot of money. The disciples were the ringleaders of misrepresentation. Interesting word, the Greek compound word for misrepresenting. You can hear our English words, pseudo martyrs, or martyr. So they were pseudo-messengers. But it gets worse, doesn't it? It gets from bad to worse. If the disciples are lying, and, and by the way, we're all lying. If the elders are lying and I'm lying, somebody else is lying. Jesus himself. Why? Listen to Mark 8. And this is what rankled the disciples, particularly Peter. He rebukes Jesus. <clears throat> and he began to teach them, who? Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man himself must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, must be rejected by the elders, must be rejected by the chief priests, must be rejected by the scribes, and must be killed. And after three days, what does it say? He must rise again. Jesus said that a number of times in the four Gospels, that he would rise from the dead. Are you beginning to get a flavor of Paul's insistence that they don't ruin their church by saying, or their seminary, or on and on, by saying there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. But he's not done. He goes to the next level. Number three, verse 17. <clears throat> and if Christ has not been raised, this is the inference, your faith is futile. It's an exercise in futility. Boy, he's really coming down in this. There's no doubt when you leave it today that Paul believed in the resurrection. He is, he is doubling and tripling and so on down on this. 
He says, your faith is futile. And if that wasn't enough, you and I, us, every church in America that preaches Christ and calls for a decision to follow Christ are still in their sins. What does it mean to be in your sins? It means you're unforgiven. There is no such thing as forgiveness. It's a pie in the sky. It's an illusion. But if you know anything about forgiveness, if you're a believer, you know there's an objective reality and a subjective reality. The objective reality is what is mentioned in Ephesians 1.7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. There it is. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's objective. Okay, you're forgiven. But there's subjective side of it. We experience God's forgiveness. If you're a believer, if you remember that moment when you gave your life to Christ, when you said, Lord Jesus, take over my life. I repent and I believe in you. You remember the moment, I hope you do, when you knew you were forgiven. It wasn't just something out there. It was here. It's one thing to be forgiven by your brothers and sisters, which mine did a lot of, but it's another thing to be forgiven by the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He confers objectively forgiveness on us by we know it in our heart of hearts. And Paul is saying, if he hasn't been raised, you are still in your sins. Why? Because if you're going to defeat sin, you have to defeat death. They both go together. Remember the very simple verse? For the wages of sin is what? Death. So what did Jesus do? He defeats sin and death. Both. They go together. And he said, if you're I, you, us, we need to know if Christ hasn't been raised, we have to find another way to be forgiven if we have any desire to have that anyway. I think God confers on us, gives to us a desire to be forgiven. But he says, you're still in your sins. But he's not done. He says there's something else. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Where have we heard that before? Very easy to remember verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not what? Not perish. Same word. He says, you, I, us. Those who went before us have all perished. He's linking it together. We will perish. They, have, they will have perished. What does that mean? Those who have fallen asleep, those who have died before we die, they've perished, annihilated or something. They've gone to nothing. Paul's setting aside sentiment, isn't he? He's saying, listen, we get by the graveside, we hug, we talk, we say, he or she is in a better place. Paul's saying, stop saying that. Don't say he's, he or she is in a better place. It doesn't exist. All your sorrow, all your hugging, the words from Christian lips, they are saying things that just need to be forgotten. 
He's really doubling down. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, mark that. This life only. Where we're seeking to defeat sin, I'm sure you are. Where you're fighting against whatever it is, depression, struggles, on and on, sorrows. And if you're doing that in light of your Christian faith, he says, there it is, we are to be pitied. Sometimes we get made fun of or persecuted. Paul says, rather tell them to pity us. I've probably been told this a few times in my life as a growing up in a large family, and they said, you're pathetic. That's not very encouraging. That's what Paul's getting at here. We should be pitied. But we better move on to verse 20, or you might really be discouraged here this morning. But Jesus says what? But, that great reversal word, but in fact, but in fact, he doesn't say in theory, but in theory, no, but in fact, Christ has been raised. What's he referring back to? We saw him. And he says this, he is the first fruits. The first fruits. A Jewish mind would have right, right away thought, first fruits, first fruits. What's that? What's first fruits? What's the first fruits? The first fruits was what they did as part of the offering. When the first fruits came in, you know what it was? It was a guarantee that the rest of the harvest would come. What's Paul saying? Jesus is a pioneer. He has paved the path. He has cut a path through the jungle, through that window of death, and he says, we we, you and I, if you're a believer this morning, you will survive death and the rest of Corinthians is we will get a new body. Whew, looking forward to that. I got a bad knee, my ankle hurts, some other stuff in the head, you know. But what an encouragement. Jesus is the first fruits. He's the pioneer. He goes before. He's our guarantee because we're united with Christ, he's a guarantee that we will be in the same place. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. We are going to survive death. We're going to overcome death. This is not a pie in the sky. Paul is defending it because he saw Jesus and then he gives this articulate argument and it's only a portion of it and said, we will be with him. Three applications. Amazing confidence. The Christian's confidence. Paul goes through this, a little bit further in 1 Corinthians 15, look, you can look at that at home. He gets to verse 55 of chapter 15, verse 55, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, and he says, oh death, where's your victory? Rhetorical question, right? <clears throat> Gone. Oh death, where's your sting? Rhetorical question. Gone. He's almost defiant when he says that. He goes on to say the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. But then he says this, and this is for you. Of course it is. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work, labor, in the Lord, here's the word, is not in vain. He's been using that, right? It's not in vain. It's actually something you're going to be rewarded for. What's he saying? Our life is not meaningless. 
We are not just some random speck in the universe. Therefore, our tears, our toil, our hardship, our teaching, our preaching, our studying, and on and on, things I haven't mentioned, raising Christian families, is not an exercise in fertility. Number two, there's actually going to be two resurrections. You go, oh, is this another sermon? Yeah, we can go into the second resurrection. No, there's going to be two resurrections. And how do I know that? Jesus spoke of it. And this is heavy, so I'm just going to warn you. This is heavy. John 5, 28 and 29. Do, mar do not marvel at this. Jesus speaking. This is red letter. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Two resurrections. Number one, those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. So what shall we do? What shall we think? Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So if we take that heart that Paul's commanding us, we should examine ourselves. Am I truly a believer? Or am I not? And admit that. But what does the death and resurrection of Christ have to do with that? Here's what Romans 5, 8 says. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one's trespass, who? Adam. God chose to have Adam be our representative of the human race. And he says, through one man, many died, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So what shall I do? Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him, there it is, from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and they are saved. I'm going to have the worship team come. And we're going to end by just looking at this card, if you would. At the back, there's a place for name, email or phone. That's up to you if you want to put it there. But there is a box, two boxes actually, I can count. <clears throat> the first box says, I became a follower of Jesus today. Number two, I want to know more about Grand Rapids Sea Free. I just want to talk about the first box. Acts 3. Excuse me. Romans 10. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. From what? Judgment? The second resurrection? The first resurrection I've talked about is he has saved us and we will be resurrected as he. But maybe you're not a believer. Are you not sure? How does that happen? What do, you, what do you do to become a follower of Christ? Well, I just told you, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. 
that Jesus was raised from the dead. For with the heart one believes and is justified. What's that word justified? Acquitted. Your sins are covered. Acts said our sins are, are you ready for this? Blotted out. What an amazing word picture. Our sins are blotted out. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer. If you're being touched by the Spirit of God to become a follower today, a Christ follower, I want to lead you in a prayer of how you do that. God's got to do it. And then we're going to have our music team close us this morning. Lord, thank you that you have made a way for men, humanity, men, women, children, to be reconciled to you. It is through your only begotten Son, your beloved Son. And you've instructed us that we believe we believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so that prayer sounds like this, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've rejected your love. I've rejected your sacrifice. I've rejected this one called Jesus. I've written them off. I've conferred on myself rather that I can take care of myself. That somehow I can be good enough to get to heaven without a Savior. I repent of that. And I repent. That prayer sounds like this. I repent now. And I put my trust in what Jesus did. Dying a brutal, brutal, brutal death. And taking upon him not just the afflictions of men. But the Father turned away from him. And he took upon himself the sins of humanity. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And today you are at the right hand of the Father, giving to us, even these moments, willing them for us, willing that we have this moment. All things exist by you willing them. And so, Father, when we repent and believe, we're aligning with your will. Thank you for this gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.